0: Well, we are in uh, Romans chapter 10 this morning, Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be reading uh, these four verses, and then we'll uh, jump into a study of of these verses. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Go and open up your copy of God's Word and stay there because we're going to be spending our time here. Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, Augustine of Hippo was perhaps one of the most influential Christians in history. And yet for 31 years of his life, he lived essentially for his own passions. He had a son out of wedlock when he was a teenager. At times, he was a drunkard. He lived for the pleasures that that money could afford, and Augustine poured himself into all sorts of philosophical pursuits and studies and systems to try and make sense of everything that he was experiencing. But his Christian mother, Monica, was always there tracking Augustine down, faithfully calling him to turn from his ways and persistently praying for him. She later told Augustine, after he had converted and shortly before he, she died, there was only one reason and one reason alone why I wished to remain a little longer in this life, and it was to see you become a Christian. And amazingly, it wasn't just Augustine who would submit to Christ, but his about 15-year-old son, Adiodatus was converted at the exact same time. Augustine credits the providence of God and his mother Monica's prayers in bringing them both to salvation. He writes, my mother placed great hope in God and she was in great labor to ensure my salvation than she had been even at my birth. Prayer too often is short-changed in the christian life honestly prayer is too often short-changed in my life it's hard to stay focused and and, and frankly i think you can, uh, comp- can you can understand this everyone has probably fallen asleep at some point when they're praying it's not happened once, maybe twice, maybe maybe a few more than that, where after we're done praying at night, my kids will say, Daddy, it's your turn, or Daddy, time to wake up. I distinctly remember a gentleman who shall remain nameless who would come, and, and we'd have uh, morning discipleship, and we'd kind of talk through different things, and at the end of our time in prayer, very frequently, I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, you wake yet? And I remember one time I actually left the room to see how long he would still be asleep and see if, you know, what would happen, right? So the, these things are a temptation for all of us, right? We understand that, that prayer sometimes can put us to sleep. And yet we also understand and we, we realize that the prayer is powerfully used by God to save the lost, And so we are actually called to persistently and to consistently pray for those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Acts 26, verse 18, we see Paul's goal in life and in his prayers, I quote, it says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And so, and so Paul begins our passage in Romans 10 verse one with these words, look down. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, to understand what he is saying there, we need to understand who the them is, right? My prayer, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, that they may be saved. Is it the, them all out there, them peoples, or you know, who is the them? Well, in the context, Paul has been talking about his, his kinsmen, his unbelieving fellow Jews. And did you notice Paul's regular prayers for salvation for the Jews flow out of his deepest desires? What does it say? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer. To God for them is that they may be saved. See, it's his heart's desire, a passion that flows through him, that bubbles up in prayer. And this compassion for the lost is a part of really who Paul is. In fact, that's how Paul started Romans chapter 9, right? Go back to the beginning of Romans 9. And he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, if it were possible Paul's desire is to be accursed, is to be condemned in the place of his brothers. Of course, this is not possible, but this is a reflection of his deep and abiding desire for the lost. His heart's breaking for, for people that he can name, for people that he prays for regularly. He fully puts himself in their place. He knows the horrors of condemnation before a holy God and the glories of salvation. And he is absolutely crushed by their unbelief. Now, I have one daughter who is deeply empathetic. It is a girl, so you can know that it was one of two, okay? To the point where this particular daughter, when she sees a sibling tear up or or even just looking a little bit sad, she is likely to start crying herself. And we're not talking about, you know, one little tear. We're talking about full-on sobbing. She might even say, oh, no, what's wrong? And she doesn't even know what's wrong, and she's already crying for this other sibling that is so sad because what does this young daughter of mine do? She feels deeply For others. And that is sweet. That is wonderful. But we need to understand that we know what's wrong with the lost. We know what's wrong with those who die without Christ. And so shouldn't our hearts of empathy break for them? shouldn't we bleed out in prayer crying out to god for the salvation of the lost brothers my heart's desire and prayer to god for them is that they may be saved now i also want you to realize that this rich compassion for the one who does not know Christ, this model of prayer for the Christians, to pray for the lost, it's sandwiched in the middle of Romans chapter nine. And if you've been with us, you understand what Romans nine has really been all about. Perhaps Romans nine is the most detailed chapter in the Bible that shows us that God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. And so we see that God chooses the redeemed, that salvation is not God simply looking ahead to see who will choose him. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who must work in our hearts to turn our dead and stony hearts into a heart of flesh so it can be sensitive to the Lord. You see, Romans 8 and 9 follow Romans 6 and 7, and so if we go back even to there, we'll see that Paul's argument has been building for for many chapters now that not a single man, woman, or child is capable of perfectly keeping God's law, that not a single man, woman, or child will want to choose to glorify Christ above get what they want, and see, God has to work in us if there's any hope for us. And some, after reading these truths, after being convinced that God is sovereign over salvation, some might doubt if we have any genuine active role to play in our salvation. And some might even lean towards something kind of like fatalism, like it is what it is. God's going to do what he's going to do. I can't just do anything about it. But then comes on the scene, Romans 10, verse 1. And what is this? It is a heart's passionate desire to pray to god for the lost and then romans 9 1 through 3 come on the scene and we see again that paul's heart is a great sorrow and has unceasing anguish and this passion this desire for those who might that someone might come to know him as his lord and savior this should erase any doubt that we have an active role to play in salvation because no matter how strongly you teach the sovereignty and power of God to effectually work in our lives, God also desires, God commands, God calls us to act. God calls us to pray for the lost and to effectually work through our prayers. And so even as we read things like Romans 9 verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and God hardens whomever he wills. That comes in the midst of Paul's compassion for the lost and his faithful prayers for the lost. Oh, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Kenneth Boa writes, there's nothing in God's sovereignty or doctrine of election that should not be touched by prayer. God's sovereignty, his ultimate power to save those whom he chooses, in no way ends our responsibility to pray for those who do not know Christ. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not antithetical. They aren't at odds. Both are a part of how God works. And so this morning, let's let's consider do you reflect Paul's passion for the lost? Does your heart break for unbelievers, even unbelievers who don't like you very much? Does your heart break for those who reject Christ? This morning as we study our text, we're going to learn to pray for, types, for four types of people who reject Christ We're going to learn to pray for four types of people who reject Christ. As Paul explains how he prays for his kinsmen to believe in Christ and be saved, he recognizes some typical flaws that that keep the lost in their unbelief. And although Paul is clearly speaking of Jews here in this passage, these flaws are really common flaws to everyone. Just as we saw last week how how legalism and the fear of man pervade our culture and and lead some to shape-shift Jesus into whoever they want him to be, this week Paul continues to give us clues into common roadblocks to unbelief. And if you're going to pray for and talk to and share the gospel with unbelievers, which is exactly what every Christian should do, then it is incredibly helpful to think through the roadblocks to unbelief what type of things get in the way of embracing Christ as lord you see knowing these challenges will help us pray pointed clear broken-hearted prayers for the lost well the first type who reject Christ are the religious zealots the religious zealot. The Philadelphia Phillies mascot is called, anybody? The Fanatic. If you want to buy some apparel for any sports team, one of the most popular websites on the internet is called Fanatics. Lord of the Rings superfans go to Comic Cons dressed as Legolas, or their favorite character. Trekkies go to Star Trek conventions, and along with five other, uh, 5,000 other Spocks, don the ears and the special inverted triangle. Yes, amen. Political junkies have to get their hourly news fix, and they easily find more fuel for their hatred or passion for their savior. I mean, political candidate see, we all know people who take their passion over their hobby to the next level, sometimes bordering on religious fervor. And a zealot is simply another way to say that guy is very serious about his thing, whatever that thing may be, which makes sense. God designed us to be worshipers. We all want to worship something. And for much of the world, it's actually some form of idolatry. Occasionally, it's a little statue that's placed prominently in someone's home. But for the most part, it's the idea behind our highest desires or delights. Our catechism says, What is idolatry? And it answers, Idolatry is trusting in or worshiping created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness for our significance or our security. And our hope is easily placed in money or jobs or, or kids or, or politics, even foolishly in, in the lions, right? It's easy to look at all sorts of things and all sorts of activities and think, you know what, those things are going to make me happy. They're gonna make me satisfied. But none of the things we most zealously pursue, except for Christ, will ever truly satisfy, will ever truly grant us eternal life. But it's one thing to zealously pursue Star Trek. It's another thing to pursue Judaism or Islam or Shintoism. You see, when religious people with great self-control and pious zeal do what is objectively good, but do it in the name of something other than the one true God, those individuals are perhaps the most difficult to reach with the gospel because they don't have no concept of needing Christ. They think they're already good. And so speaking of his fellow Jews, Paul says that many indeed are zealous. And look at verse two. He says, for I bear them witness, he's like, I I can testify to this, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, part of the Jewish zeal we see at this point was developed directly due to their history over the last couple hundred years up to this point. You see, God had delivered them up to exile in Babylon, and then he'd use the, the prophets to call them to repentance. We, we read about this in the Old Testament. And some, no doubt, genuinely desired to worship and follow God with a greater zeal than they had prior to the exile. But, but others became zealous for their religious system, and they got good at making up all sorts of rules in different rabbinical writings and different teachers of Jewish laws. And there would be the, the Torah, which is the Old Testament kind of the the first five books of the Old Testament. And then they would have rabbis who would teach on the Torah. And then those would be collected in something called the Mishnah. And then you'd have other rabbis later teach on the Mishnah. And then you'd have other rabbis teach on those rabbis' teachings. And it would just get on and on and on. And pretty soon by the time Christ comes, by the time Paul is around, by the time Paul is writing, you've got people who are totally invested into not just the Torah, but the whole of these rabbinical traditional writings that have come. And I'm just gonna give you a little example of some of the craziness that was going on in there, okay? We see, for example, that zealous Jews must cut their fingernails left hand one day and right hand another day. And they must do it not in the typical order, but a very specific order. Left hand first, ring, pointer, pinky, middle, thumb. And to make it more confusing, it was the, a totally different order on, on, the, on the right hand. They would go pointer, yeah, pointer, ring, thumb, middle, pinky on the right hand right? So, so they, they had this specific order that they would do it. And further, according to the Gemara Katan 18a, when one cuts or bites one's nails, one must make sure that none of the clippings remain on the floor. It is best to burn one's nails clippings. The next best option is to bury them because if a pregnant woman walks on them, they bring harm to her. Is that in the Torah? Is that in the first five books of Moses? No, it wasn't. It was slowly developed over time. And that sounds a bit crazy to us, but these things undoubtedly became part of and wrapped up in a zeal for what they thought was doing what God wanted. Well, there's another example of perhaps more credible zeal for God that comes from what we know as the Apocrypha from 1 Maccabees 2. And the Apocrypha mostly is just intertestamental Jewish writings, okay? Okay. Um, they're not all bad. They're just historical accounts, a lot of what happened. And Antiochus Epiphanes ruled in Jerusalem around 100, 150 um, uh, BC. And, and he ruled about a century and a half after Alexander the Great um, c- took over that area. And he was related to Alexander's generals and, and Cleopatra famously. And so this is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus' goal was to snuff out Judaism in Jerusalem. He infamously sacrificed a pig on the rebuilt altar in Jerusalem. Well, we get this account in first Maccabees chapter two. The king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the town of Modin to make them offer sacrifice. And then the king's officer spoke to Matthias as follows You are a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the nations and the people of Judah and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts." But Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, "'Even if all the nations that live "'under the rule of the king obey him "'and have chosen to obey his commandments, "'every one of them abandoning the religion "'of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers "'will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors.'" "'Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. "'We will not obey the king's words "'by turning aside from our religion "'to the right hand or to the left.' "'When he had finished speaking these words, "'a Jew came forward in the sight of all "'to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modin "'to the pagan god according to the king's commands.' And when Matthias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and he slaughtered him on the altar. And at the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phinehas did against Zimri, son of Salu. Then Matthias cried out in the town, the loud voice saying, let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. Then he and his sons fled to the hills and left all that they had in the town. Talk about an intense sign of zeal, huh? To put his life on the line, Matthias wanted to honor God and and his word above all. And I think in a lot of ways, it's very commendable. It's a great picture of the heart of Jewish zeal for God. He even mentions Phineas, who is commended highly by God in a similar way, killing someone who was worshiping pagan gods but today when you fail to recognize god in the flesh when you fail to recognize jesus as the messiah no matter where your zeal is placed even if it's in the same god of the old testament that zeal is misplaced paul completely understood this because before paul was paul and a christian paul was Saul and a zealous Jew, a zealous Jew who adamantly hated Christians. I mean, just listen to Philippians uh, chapter 3 and what Paul wrote of himself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And so Paul could say here in Romans 10, Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. The religious zealots that you know, might you might think, are some of the hardest to reach with the gospel of Christ. But in my experience, most who are very zealous for their religion are actually the most likely to be willing to talk with you about your faith. And since the gospel comes by hearing the word of God, we must remain faithful to share and let God's word work. But we also must pray hard. Because although initial conversations are often easier with religious zealots, the longer and more firmly you hold to a religious system, even a whole frame of thinking the harder it is to drop that religious system and turn to worship the one true God. So we must pray that things like family loyalty, commitments to a worldview and a way of life will bow to the truth of who Christ is. That they'll see straight from the scriptures that their greatest need isn't met by zealously following whatever religion or whatever system, whatever pursuits they pursue but by recognizing that you can't follow a system perfectly and by realizing that Romans 3.23 speaks truth for all have sinned and what falls short of the glory of God and that Christ alone then offers a full payment for sin, the only payment for sins that was sufficient before the holy, righteous God. You see, conversations perhaps are easier with a religious zealot, but we must pray especially for the heart to be softened to the truth. Because as Paul notes, their zeal, what does he say in verse two? Is not according to knowledge. And that actually leads to our next type of unbeliever to pray for. It's the ignorant, the ignorant. Well, generally there are two types of ignorance. The the first type is the ignorance is based simply on not knowing something. And the second ignorance is rooted in your blindness because you're deceived and have embraced a contrary lie. And the answer for both is to point to what is true. For example, uh, you can imagine a child not realizing that uh, in the 1960s, the United States landed somebody on the moon, right? And you tell them that and they're like, wow, that's really neat. That's exciting. That's ignorance type one. But then you might have somebody who has watched some of those uh, um, kind of TV specials on how the moon landing was faked. And they're totally convinced that this is all just a charade that all is make believe and that no one actually landed on the moon. And so they are ignorant number two, because they're blinded to the reality that someone landed on the moon because they believe some sort of lie, right? So there's two types of ignorance that we're dealing with typically in the world. And that's why for Jews who reject Christ as Messiah, I love to turn to Isaiah 53 because it addresses both types of ignorance. Isaiah 53, it speaks of this crucified Messiah. And a lot of Jews, in fact, in synagogues, that specific text is skipped over in Isaiah readings because By and large, the Pharisees and the Messiahs, uh, not Messiahs, but the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish temples didn't think of their Messiah and like to think of their Messiah as a crucified Savior, like Isaiah 53 says. And so some are just ignorant, and you point to them and say, This is what Isaiah said, and they're like, Wow, that actually speaks of Jesus. And some are so blinded to the idea that they hate Jesus and they don't want Jesus, and by showing them straight from scriptures that no, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would die for sins, Lord willing, their hearts would be softened. See, at the root of ignorance is a lack of understanding that they need to be right with God through the perfect sacrifice of Messiah, Jesus. And so the Jews had a zeal but it was without knowledge, right? The end of verse two. Then he says this in verse three. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now specifically, it says something very interesting. What are they ignorant of? Look down in verse three. What are they ignorant of? Of the righteousness of God. Does that mean as in the goodness of God? Are they ignorant that God is a good God? I don't think that's exactly what it's talking about. I think that they're ignorant of God's righteousness that gets credited to us through Christ, a righteousness that comes through the gospel. And in fact, I think we're on solid ground when we believe this because that's how Paul has used this term the righteousness of God since the very beginning of Romans and so go back to Romans chapter one I want you to see this with me go back to Romans chapter one verse 16 Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, so the gospel, the good news that God gives us in Christ Jesus, that he came to die and and for our sins and rose again to show that we have the power of our sin. That gospel, that good news that Christ came and did these things, is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And then verse 17, this is where I get our, our phrase here. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is manifested from faith or beginning when you have faith to faith, beginning and ending with faith. So as you live a faithful life, trusting in Christ for your salvation, the righteousness of God is manifested in us. We are declared to be right. In other words, God's plan of redemption, his way to eternally offer hope to humanity isn't by getting us to be good, isn't by getting us to follow the law perfectly. The only thing we get based on living according to our own standards or according to some wise man's ways, the only thing we get actually is the wrath of God. Look at chapter one, verse 18. As for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in the things that he has made. In all creation, it speaks of his power and his glory. And then he says this, verse 21. For although they, all humanity, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And since God requires perfection to have eternal life, to get into his blessed presence after we die, the only chance we have we have to go to heaven, to have eternal life is if we are somehow declared to be righteous, if we are somehow given the standing of righteous before God. It's only by an imputed righteousness it's only by an alien righteousness you guys understand what i mean by alien righteousness it's a it's a righteousness that's not inherent in us it's only by a righteousness that comes from outside of us where god says you know what i know you're a sinner but i'm going to declare you to be right and righteous and how alone does that happen it happens by faith in jesus christ and what he did on the cross And so this is the ongoing gospel testimony of how the righteousness of God is revealed in this world. So it's by Christ's righteousness given to those who believe in who Christ is and what Christ accomplished, who trust that Christ died on the cross as a perfect substitute sins. This is the righteousness of God that begins with our faith and ends as we have faith in the Lord. But that's the problem with those who are lost with those who reject Christ as Lord and Savior, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They don't understand how to receive God's righteousness. They don't understand how they can be declared righteous. Ignorance over how the gospel works isn't just a minor oversight. It's got eternal ramifications So go back to Romans 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Ignorance is often deadly. Well, I still remember one of the times that my ignorance almost knocked me out cold. I was playing soccer in about the third or the fourth grade and I was a small child, all of maybe 50 or 60 pounds at that time. But I was particularly fast. And so I was running for the ball on the soccer field down the sideline and my friend had the ball in midfield and I was calling for the ball, looking back at him and he kicked the ball forward to me and as soon as I looked forward to get that ball, I turned and right in front of me was one of those tetherball poles stuck in a tire and cement. You know what I'm talking about? right? And I hit that thing square in the middle of my head, running full speed. Now, remember, third or fourth grade me, 56-year-pound me, I couldn't get that tire thing down with all my might, right? I couldn't pull that thing down to get the tetherball on the top of it. I had to get some bigger classmate to do that. But guess what I did with my head? I knocked that thing flat down on the ground, and that pole and I were sitting flat on the ground, moaning together over the collision that had just happened, a huge lump eventually would protrude on my head and I was totally unaware of that tetherball pole and it cost me. You see, some of the best opportunities to share the gospel are with the ignorant. Uh, they're like me with the tetherball pole. If I would have known the pole was there, I would have moved over five feet and gone down and scored a goal. But I didn't. Sometimes all you need to do with those who already want to follow God is simply help them understand what God wants, what God teaches, who God is. God's been working in their hearts in some amazing ways already. But a lot of times, this isn't a one-time gospel presentation. This is a slow, careful process of teaching truth, helping the ignorant grasp truth how the gospel solves their biggest problem, what it means to turn and to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to live like Christ is king of their life. So as you pray for the ignorant unbelievers, ask for patience and conviction as you teach the gospel. Ask that the Lord would give both you and them strength to persevere and keep going and eyes to see to understand what the Bible says. Well, there's a third type of unbeliever addressed in verse three. It's the rule follower. We got the religious zealot, the ignorant, and now we have the rule follower. Unlike being ignorant of a pole on the soccer field, being ignorant of Christ and his critical work on the cross really should affect everything in your life. It should affect why we do what we do, How we do what we do, it should affect habits like being in church and and family worship, and the gospel is going to affect why you seek to do good in your life. A Christian should do all that we do, really, for the glory of Christ. But the rule follower does good thinking they're acting in their own power the rule follower is the one who, who thinks that they're establishing their own righteousness before God so so look back at verse 3 right speaking of the Jews again for being ignorant of the righteousness of God of how you become right with God what do they do and seeking to establish their own righteousness before God then they did not submit to God's righteousness You see, when you're ignorant of the gospel and how we get right before a holy God, when you're ignorant of the free gift that comes to us through Christ, the typical response is to simply try to be a good person in your own way, on your own terms. And that's really a great simplification of every single religion. They essentially teach what makes a man good in his own power. As my former pastor used to say, John MacArthur, Christianity is a religion of divine accomplishment and every other religion is a, is a, a religion of human achievement. It's all based on what you can do. And so many people are stuck in the rut of simply trying really hard to follow a set of rules, thinking that they'll, they'll get right with God through the power of, of self-control. But Paul is clear here. The rule rule follower inherently rejects God's gift of free righteousness. They seek to establish, look at that verse three, right? They seek to establish their own righteousness. And so they do not submit, they do not believe, they do not submit their lives to God's plan for righteousness, even if you're ignorant. You see, when you're good at following rules, when you find it easy to stay disciplined, a lot of times you have a hard time seeing your own sin. It's very easy to compare yourself to others. I think we all do it. And as you do, you can think, wow, I'm sure God is way more pleased with me than that guy. Maybe you have a sibling who lacks self-control, and you think, man, I got it good compared to him or her. Maybe you have a friend that always seems to make poor choices or, or perhaps your, your life is headed in a much better direction than a friend of yours who graduated from high school 20 years ago just like you. And you look at your life, and you look at their life, and you say, I really got this thing down. But the rule follower is lost without Christ. The rule follower needs Christ as much as the rule breaker And so as you pray for unbelievers who are good at being good, who are good at following a set of moral obligations, who like to say things like, you know what? Ah, they're all just good people out there. We have no, uh, who have no concept that God alone must declare us right to be saved. We need to pray that God would open their eyes To the rule followers' depth of despair, this should be over their own sin. We need to pray that God would help them understand Jesus' explanation of, of things like the Ten Commandments. Right? Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, do not murder. What does he say? I tell you, if anyone is angry with his brother in his heart, it's as if he's committed murder already. Ask them if they've ever lied. I mean, who hasn't lied? Everyone has lied. And then show them James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And so we see very clearly the rule follower needs to be humbled. And you, Christian, guard your own heart because many Christians struggle to think of their relationship with God as Somehow, just all about a bunch of rules. And forget that following God's rules comes only as we trust that the Savior has paid it all and realize all to Him I owe. Following the rules in God's economy should flow out of a new life that aims to trust in Christ and serve Him as Lord. That's often really hard for rule followers to comprehend. there's one final type of unbeliever we should pray for number four the I have other goals in life guy or gal the I have other goals in life guy or gal ask any of the self-help books and they'll say one of the most important things to being successful is knowing where you're going to know what the goal of life is It's important to have short-term goals. It's important to have long-term goals. It's important to have professional goals, family goals, even hobby goals. Now, don't get me wrong. Goal setting is very important. Having an idea of where you've been and where you're going is vital to living even the Christian life. I mean, just think about backing up your car with no rearview mirror and never looking behind you. How far are you going to get before you crash that thing, right? Such is life without goals, often a train wreck. But what goals should mark the Christian life? What are the types of things which all Christians should aim for? And as we look toward our future, what's the culmination of all of life, really? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The NIV actually helpfully interprets this word end here. For Christ is the end of the law. It actually says, for Christ is the culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word culmination captures the two aspects of the Greek word for end this verse seems to highlight. It seems to focus the time aspect and the goal aspect. It seems to focus on the chronology that Christ came at the end of the period of the law and the purpose to fulfill the law, right? Both completion of the law, as he perfectly fulfilled the law and perfectly followed the law and and intention. The law was designed to point towards Christ again and again. So Christ literally marked the end of the law and the end of attempts to earn salvation through following God's law. He came to perfectly fulfill the law and then credit us with his righteousness. And so Christ is also the culmination, the whole goal of God's law. right? God's law is designed to be a tutor. It's designed to be a teacher to help us See that we cannot be perfect before God to help us see that we need a Savior. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So no longer are all aspects of the law in place today, but but we look to Christ who brings righteousness to those who believe. And so that's what's going on in verse 4 for Christ is the culmination or the goal or the end of the law for righteousness. No longer are you trying to follow the law for your righteousness, but then he says "Its righteousness is given to everyone who believes. You see, Christ's perfect law-keeping righteousness is ours when we believe and when we trust in his perfect substitute sacrifice. And when we turn to follow him with our life, running towards Christ as if we're in a race, it means that he is both the goal of our race and the finish line of our race. He is worth everything to get. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus tells some parables to... The large crowds who had gathered around him, who had been trying to um, follow him and experience explain kind of the miracles that he'd been saying, and some were beginning to believe in him some were not some were doubting some were questioning him and jesus tells the parable to these large crowds in matthew 13 to show just how all-encompassing repentance should look matthew 13 verse 44 and when you begin to realize who christ is what it means to worship him what it means to gain eternal life then you're going to be willing to give up anything for christ so so look at Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the whole point of those parables, of those, of those you know, phrases there, is to show us how valuable Christ is, how valuable our salvation should be. We are to give up everything for the sake of Christ. But for an unbelieving world, many, frankly, have more important goals for their life than to glorify Christ. Perhaps the goal that some people have is some sort of vacation Maybe it's a cottage they own. Maybe it's a a dollar amount that they want in their bank account or a retirement age that they're aiming for. Perhaps it's some leisure activity that is the goal of their life. See, someone who doesn't believe Jesus is God, who doesn't believe Jesus is their greatest need, will never see him as the great treasure that they are willing to sell all to go buy. They'll have a hard time reframing the goals of their life to center on Christ. There are plenty of people who are interested in Christianity who think highly of Jesus, maybe even think that he's God, who evidently have more important goals in their life than to glorify and honor him. And so as we pray regularly, faithfully, for unbelievers, for for the lost, for for some that means we, we focus our prayers for God to readjust their life goals. Sometimes we pray that their need for Christ would be a greater source of joy than what they found pleasure in in the past. Either way, we faithfully pray for those who have other goals in life than Christ. And so as we close, we are reminded of our call again to pray for the lost, to pray that God would soften the heart of the religious zealot that he would open the eyes of the ignorant, that he would humble the rule follower, and that he would help an unbelieving world see the soul-satisfying goal of walking with Christ, that he is worthy of all our affections. I'm going to close our time reading a Puritan prayer for the lost by a man named Joseph Alline. And may this be a rich encouragement for us to model. This is from the book, Piercing Heaven. Let's close in prayer. For those who do not know you yet, Lord, grab onto them now and do your work. Take them by the heart, overcome them and persuade them until they say, you have won, you are stronger than I. Lord, did you not make me a fisher of men? I have worked all this time and caught nothing. Have I spent my strength for nothing? I will cast my net one more time. Oh, Lord Jesus, stand on the shore and show me how and where to spread my net. Give me the words to enclose the souls I seek that they will have no way out. Now, Lord, for a multitude of souls, now for a full portion. Lord God, remember me, I pray, and strengthen me, O God. And Heavenly Father, we do pray for us too that you would help us to be fishers of men and that as uh, yet before we go out, before we share the gospel, before we are motivated to uh, explain the truths and the glories of how we can be right with you, Lord, help us to be a praying people. Help our hearts to break with great empathy for those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that we would be faithful, never tiring of praying again and again for the salvation of those who do not know you. Thank you for the encouragement that we have to pray for the lost. Thank you for the description that we've had of those who don't know you so that we can be better equipped in our hearts to pray, so that we can be better equipped to share the good news. And we pray that you would work powerfully through our ministries. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.